Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, Features Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. And this is the week in which Donald Trump and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe discussed North Korea launching a nuclear missile in the dining room of Mar-a-Lago. As a president does. Yeah, and people were shining cell phone lights on to the confidential documents. This is the president who criticized his opponent, Hillary Clinton, for being careless about her email server. This has been the week of national security disasters. (laughs) And we're only 20-some days into the presidency. Later in the episode, we're going to be hearing from ACLU lawyer Joshua Block, who's representing transgender teen Gavin Grimm at the Supreme Court next month. He has been—I'm starting to tear up a little bit right now. I I cannot imagine doing what he's done. And the courage, you know, that he's shown and the fortitude that he's shown, it's just— inspiring to me. But first, our week in weenies. So first up in our week of weenies is Oklahoma State Representative Justin Humphrey. So Justin Humphrey recently introduced a bill that requires pregnant women to get consent from the father of their fetus. So whether that's their husband or their male partner or... Or anyone. Or anyone. Anyone. Any man. man. A man who they have had sex with, uh, in order to get an abortion. So this is extremely unconstitutional, as in the Supreme Court declared it to be unconstitutional several decades ago. However— By the way, it's just, like, crazy that we even had to ask the Supreme Court. Right, because women are not competent to make decisions (laughs) about their bodies for themselves. They obviously need a man's permission to do so. Uh, So Humphrey introduced this very unconstitutional bill— And what makes him a weenie, though, because other lawmakers, surprisingly, or rather maybe not surprisingly, have been introducing bills like this as well in other states. But Humphrey justified his bill by basically saying what I think lots of lawmakers want to say but never actually would say. So this is what he said in an interview with The Intercept. He said that, I believe one of the breakdowns in our society is that we have excluded the man out of all these types of decisions. And then he says of pregnant women, I understand that they feel like that is their body, but I feel like it is a separate, well, what I call them is you're a host. And you know when you enter into a relationship, you're going to be that host. And so, you know, if you pre-know that, then take all precautions and don't get pregnant. So that's where I'm at. I'm like, hey, your body is your body and be responsible with it. But after you're irresponsible, then don't claim, well, I can just go and do this with another body when you're the host and you invited that in. (laughs) I've read that before, but hearing you do a dramatic reading was so much better. Thank you. I that's that's my new favorite thing to say to pregnant women now is congratulations on becoming a host and inviting that in. Yeah, congratulations to pregnant women on no longer becoming women, autonomous women. I mean, not that they were of in this guy's mind to begin with. Right. Our next weenie of the week is Stephen Miller, the man who looks like a literal hot dog weenie. He is a 31-year-old guy from Santa Monica who became famous this week after weenieing all over the Sunday shows after Donald Trump sent him out in Sean Spicer's stead because Sean Spicer is fucking up so hard. Our opponents, the media, 
and the whole world will soon see as we begin to take further actions that the powers of the president to protect our country are very substantial and will not be questioned. So since then, we have really heard almost unlimited anecdotes about what an asshole this guy is. Among other things, he's reportedly the brains behind the Muslim ban. He co-wrote Trump's inauguration speech with Steve Bannon. We've covered both of those things in past episodes of Big Time Dicks. In high school, he was overtly racist towards his Latino classmates. According to Univision, he wrote in a letter to the local paper, meaning he is proud of this, uh, that providing announcements in his school in both English and Spanish demeaned the immigrant population and provided them a crutch. While a student at Duke University, he helped launch and run the, quote, Terrorism Awareness Project, which aimed to educate students about the threat of something he called Islamofascism. So what is Islamofascism? I don't know. I can read you this quote, though. <laughs> okay. Please do. The quote is, Gripped by complacency and the omnipresent force of political correctness, our nation has failed to educate our youth about the holy war being waged against us and what needs to be done to defeat the jihadists that are waging this war. American kids attend school in an educational system corrupted by the hard left. In this upside-down world, America is the villain and jihadists the victims of our foreign policy. Instead of opening eyes, we are fastening blindfolds. Wow. Fifty Shades Jihadi (laughs) edition. Our colleague and close friend Katie McDonough at Fusion interviewed a speech coach named John West about why Stephen Miller is such a weenie other than his views and his policy and his actions and his personality. And the coach said, quote, the first thing that comes to mind before we even touch voice would be observable physical exasperation. If you shy, if you sigh, if you shake your head back and forth, if you roll your eyes. The second thing is the condescending intonation pattern. That kind of inflection suggests a waste of time. So, I mean, don't take it from us. Take it from a speech scientist. He's a coach, not a scientist, but, like, you get it. So our third weenie of the week is Michael Flynn, who was in office for a record number of 24 days as the national security advisor until he was forced to resign on Monday night after the Post, Washington Post reported that he had misled the White House on discussions that he had with the Russian ambassador before uh, Donald Trump took office. So as we all know, Russia interfered with the U.S. election, which is— Insane and scary and a very big deal that should be getting a lot more coverage than it is. And they waged cyber attacks against the DNC and Hillary Clinton in an effort to help Donald Trump's campaign. And one of Flynn's conversations with the ambassador was on the same day that President Obama had announced sanctions against Russia as punishment. So Flynn had denied that he talked about these sanctions with Russia to other White House officials and to the press. But then it was reported that he actually did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. So you see the dilemma here. And also uh, it was reported that Sally Yates, who you may recall is the former acting attorney general, Trump conveniently fired for doing her job. She had actually told the White House that based on those conversations, she thought that Flynn was compromised. Basically, he was vulnerable to blackmail from the Russian government and that had gone ignored. 
So now there are a lot of questions as to what happened in these conversations, who was involved in them, how, who knew what, and including at what level. So, like, did Donald? What did Donald Trump know? But he clearly knew something. Like he's he known about this something. for weeks, right? And, and so didn't fire Michael Flynn. He was right. like, yes, this is. Fine. So there are several levels of security breaches here at a very, very high level, going into a country with a country that was surveilling us and was interfering with a democratic election. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah, it's like a pretty big deal. Yeah. And (laughs) um, when Michael Flynn resigned, he, in his apology, he said that he had inadvertently misled. So, so quote, inadvertently. So basically he passed it off as just an honest mistake, which is not really acceptable for somebody who is the head of national security at the White House. I would also like to note, though, a second set of weenies that have helped propped him up. So like a fourth set of weenies. Yeah, a fourth set of weenies. who are the, the Republicans who are refusing to investigate him. Oh, yeah, like Rand Paul, who is like, let's not, let's not waste time investigating our own party. Right. And then uh, Jason Chaffetz, who led all the investigations against Hillary Clinton e- Clinton's emails, promised— to continue to investigate her if she had become president. And now is like, oh, well, he resigned. So I think the matter has taken care of itself. Also, Speaker Paul Ryan, who we've featured as a weenie before, I mean, I really find him to be the quintessential weenie, has declined the call for an an investigation into General Flynn, saying that we need to get more information before rushing for judgment. Bitch, that's what an investigation is. What do you think an investigation is? (laughs) It's getting more information. Ugh, I hate these guys. Okay, and now our second ever Weenie of the Week cage match in which we determine which of the weenies of the week is the worst weenie. Prachi, do you have someone that you'd like to bring into the ring to be Yeah, I think that uh, Michael Flynn is my weenie of the week. Why do you think he's your weenie of the week? Because he... He was in charge of national security and has completely fucked everything up. And that's my very scientific analysis of the situation. And he not only, I mean, he lied to numerous officials. And in a best case scenario, he was the only one who did so. But in a worst case scenario, we have a serious security breach that involves all the way up to Donald Trump and a foreign government that has already declared very clearly that they are meddling in our democratic process and are have been rooting for Trump's campaign. I see your Michael Flynn, but I'm going to just argue for Stephen Miller as Weenie of the Week. I just think that Stephen Miller is like, this is me giving Flynn so much credit that he doesn't deserve. But I'm just <laughs> like, okay, Flynn, he's an idiot. He seduced by Russia. I've seen the Americans. I know how that can happen. It's evil, but I know how that can happen. Stephen Miller has been this way. He's only 31. He's been this way since he was born. Like, he converted his parents to be conservatives, and he's been proud of his, not just, like, conservative, but racist, anti-immigrant opinions for his entire life, and he's so freaking young. What is yeah. wrong with him? You know, I will I will hand it to you that, um, you know, the thing about Michael Flynn is that he was clearly really bad, just really incompetent at this because after 24 days, 
He's, you know, he's not he's not some mastermind who yeah. could really work through. I mean, through. maybe he was and we're being played, but it doesn't yeah. seem like it. But it, it doesn't seem like it, and he's out, and now there are going to be investigations, and he, at least at some level. Right. And journalists and other political leaders are not going to let this go so easily, so at least that's out in the open. But Stephen Miller is still in the office and is still— the architect, along with Steve Bannon, the other racist in chief, and they are so—it's true. They're so terrifyingly— That kind of evilness like, feels more—that's, e- like, more evil to me. Right. It's this insidious, like—like, Stephen Miller—I I was trying to think about the most racist encounter I've ever had, and I think it was actually when I was four, I was— in preschool, and I wanted to play house with all the girls, and I walked over to, like, the lead girl, Jessica. I'm very scared. Yeah, this is a little, <laughs> this is story time right now, and uh, she told me I could play house with everyone, finally, after I asked three times, and she said no, and then on the third time, she says, fine, you can play, but only if you're the servant, <laughs> and I was the, I was the only person of color in the entire school. <laughs> So I think Stephen Miller is worse than Jessica. <laughs> Jessica's bad, but Stephen Miller is definitely worse. Yeah. <laughs> I'm stunned. <laughs> okay, so Joanna, I think you made a strong case. Stephen Miller <laughs> is definitely our weenie of the week. And now our dick of the week is the Gloucester County School Board. This is a big day because it's our first non-human dick of the week. So at the Grammy Awards on Sunday, Laverne Cox asked us to Google Gavin Grimm. Please Google Gavin Grimm. He's going to the Supreme Court in March. Hashtag stand with Gavin. So he did. Gavin Grimm is a teen who came out as transgender in 2014 and began using the boys' restroom at his school, Gloucester High School in Gloucester, Virginia, after asking for and receiving permission from the school's administrators. The administrators, everyone was cool with it. And then according to the ACLU, the school allowed Grimm to use the boys' bathroom for two months until the school started receiving complaints from parents and other county residents. Um, And at this point, the school board adopted a policy out of nowhere, that prohibited trans students from using communal bathrooms and forced them to use, quote, alternative private ones. So to be clear, they created this policy after this boy was already using these bathrooms, which he had gotten permission to do so, and was not bothering anybody. Yeah, and the people who complained weren't the ones using the bathrooms. They were like people who didn't go to the school. Right. They were parents. So... Here's Gavin speaking at a Gloucester County school board meeting in 2014. I've seen comments from adults, not even students, adults, talking about something that they largely have no idea about. I've seen teachers that I've had, people that I've looked up to and respected, publicly denounce me. They, this could be your child. This could be your child, your sister, your brother, your niece, your nephew. I am not the only transgender student in Gloucester County, and I deserve the rights of every other human being. I am just a human. I am just a boy. Please consider my rights when you make your decision. Thank you very much. Thank you. So 
So one year later, Grimm sued the Gloucester County School Board in federal court, arguing that their policy that barred him from using the bathroom that corresponded with his gender identity violated Title IX, which is the federal law barring sex discrimination in schools. And he won at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, overturning a lower court's decision. But then the school district appealed, and now the case has been sent to the Supreme Court. So Gavin and and trans uh, people all over America right now are facing an uphill battle with increased legislation against uh, the trans community, oftentimes in the form of these quote-unquote bathroom bills. So in 2017, 14 states— have already either pre-filed or introduced legislation that would limit access to locker rooms, bathrooms, and other traditionally gender-segregated facilities based on someone's, quote, like, biological sex. But I think that before we talk more about the trans bill specifically, I think it's really important to talk about the history of public bathrooms as a battlefield for in the fight for equality. And that's been the case pretty much since public restrooms existed. So in the 1700s, public restrooms were mostly for men because uh, women <laughs> women didn't belong in public. So they weren't peeing in public. Exactly. They don't well, even get a, a Well, the toilet. argument was that women belonged at home and they would not need to be out in public for long enough to need a bathroom. Which fundamentally misunderstands how— Bodily your functions work. Your butt work. <laughs> yeah, I guess they went to bathroom on a the bathroom on a schedule. I guess. Yeah. Um, that was organized by men. Yeah. So <laughs> in the late 1800s, women started working in factories. So they started leaving the home more, and they were out in public more, and they were in businesses. So then there was a lot of anxiety about making sure the bathrooms were segregated between men and women. So this is the idea, like the idea of. Feeling protected in the bathroom comes all the way from really old gender norms from the 1700s. From women not being allowed from, to use them. Basically, yeah. I mean, basically that comes from, like, coverture, the idea that women, a woman is a man's property, mm-hmm. uh, which was the case through the revolution. Until so recently. Until <laughs> t- disturbingly recently. Yeah. So in 1887, Massachusetts passed the first law requiring gender-segregated bathrooms, and then by, like, 1930, 19- 20, 43 states had passed similar laws. Okay, so having a gender-segregated bathroom, the foundational idea behind it is a man saying, I don't want anyone to be able to touch my woman while she's peeing in public. Right. Okay, and so this would seem like men are afraid of other men. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So now— a couple of years later, now we're, you know, it's we're in Jim Crow South and then the Civil Rights era. So then this idea of protecting women, and I think we should be really clear that we're talking about protecting specifically white women, now perpetuated forms of racism and segregation. So now what we saw is that uh, racist white people uh, would characterize black men as hypersexual predators who would then attack and rape white women in bathrooms. So this was the argument against integrating public facilities, including bathrooms. Okay, so again, this is like men wanting to protect their women from right. threats that they have yes. invented. and now the new threat is specifically black men, and okay. that's the argument used by segregationists in the civil rights era. So they actually had had pamphlets that told parents not to send their daughters to integrated schools because they would catch STDs from black people. 
Um, and then, yeah, because part of the myth of this hypersexualized uh, black male and black and black female was that they had STDs, just like rampant STDs. That would which, just float off of that them. Would just, yeah, they would just float off of them and then into the vaginas of white women, <laughs> basically. <Okay. laughs> so it's also in kind of incredible how many things straight white men are afraid of. They're scared of so much. They're scared of I guess, everyone. I guess who's if you had them. every right in the world, you might be a little bit scared of everything that you thought might chip away at you know when your you're at the bottom, ability to own everything. Right. Maybe? It's when you're at the top, you have more to lose. Yeah, I guess that's the logic. So yeah. things get even crazier. So while this was happening, Americans also started really fearing gay people, and so now Americans saw gay people as this huge threat as sex offenders and pedophiles who would attack children in bathrooms. And so they didn't want gay men to use public restrooms. And you'd have public officials actually telling, like, warning children, specifically boys, to be very careful about using public restrooms. So I want to listen to right now a PSA that was created by Inglewood City's police department and a school district in California in 1961. The decision is always yours and your whole future may depend on making the right one. So no matter where you meet a stranger, be careful if they are too friendly, if they try to win your confidence too quickly, and if they become overly personal. One never knows when the homosexual is about. He may appear normal, and it may be too late when you discover he is mentally ill. So keep with your group, and don't go off alone with strangers unless you have the permission of your parent or teacher. What it seems like to me listening to all of this is that men are scared of a lot of things. White men. That white men are scared straight of Straight white men. Straight white men are scared of a lot of things that women might encounter in a bathroom. Right. It's the same exact unfounded fear that has no evidence behind it. And also, I would just like to point out the hypocrisy here of all the things that white men are scared about for women, but then all the things that they actually also ignore, like rape culture. Yeah, right. Which is a like, real I don't want to women. I don't want to allow anyone in the bathroom, but like I also don't believe you if you say you're raped. Exactly. So <laughs> maybe if all rapes happened in bathrooms, they would they start would to start believe to it. believe it. You know, if all rapes happen in bathrooms, in they would be bathrooms. like anybody can use a bathroom. Right. So yeah, the reason I wanted to recount all of this is because there's clearly a really strong pattern here of protecting women from some unfounded threat of the bathroom predator. And I think it's one that we're seeing play out again right now with the anti-trans bathroom bills. 2016 saw a record number of anti-trans bills, and 2017 is on track for possibly even more. And in March of last year, North Carolina became the first state to pass a controversial anti-trans bathroom bill, HB2, which required people to use a bathroom that corresponds with the gender they were assigned on their birth certificate. The outcry was immediate. People recognize this as discriminatory. Um, celebrities like Bruce Springsteen boycotted them, and yeah, people stopped going out. on tour to yeah. North people Carolina. avoided North Carolina, and then um, actually, Governor, former Governor Pat McCrory, even lost his reelection bid because of the outrage over this bill. So the Obama administration eventually filed a suit against HB2 and then issued a guidance saying that all schools should allow students to use bathrooms corresponding to their gender identity and arguing that Title IX prohibited that. The laws that have been passed there are wrong. 
and should be overturned. And they're in response to politics in part, in part uh, some strong emotions uh, that are generated by uh, people, some of whom uh, are good people, but I just disagree with. And then last May, a group of states trying to pass this similar anti-trans legislation sued the Obama administration for instructing schools to allow trans students to use whatever bathroom they want. And then a district judge sided with the states and issued a temporary injunction blocking that guidance. So all of these bills that we're seeing now against the trans community and even the bills that we saw in the past 100 years curbing the rights of black people, of gay people, um, from using the same bathrooms as really white women, uh, we're all under done under the name of the quote-unquote bathroom predator. There is zero evidence that trans people will attack women in bathrooms. So I think a perfect example of this is in 2015, Houston tried to pass the Equal Rights Ordinance, which was all good things. So basically it just said that it was going to prohibit discrimination based on a set of 15 traits, which included gender identity, race, and sexual orientation when it came to uh, public issues like housing, employment, um, and a bunch of other stuff. This is, listen to this ad for its opponents. Houston's Proposition 1 bathroom ordinance. What does it mean to you? Any man at any time could enter a woman's bathroom simply by claiming to be a woman that day. No one is exempt. Even registered sex offenders could follow women or young girls into the bathroom. And if a business tried to stop them, they'd be fined. Protect women's privacy. Prevent danger. Vote no on the Proposition 1 bathroom ordinance. It goes too far. Time and time again, from reports from experts on sexual violence in law enforcement, in education and school boards where they have gender-neutral policies, they have testified, they have released in reports that there is no evidence for this. There have been no crimes committed by trans people um, or people identifying as trans in women's bathrooms. And I think this is a really powerful statement from Cassandra Thomas of the Houston Area Women's Center in response or in defense of Houston's Equal Rights Ordinance. It may sound good, and it certainly does excite a whole lot of folks. But the truth of the matter is that banning transgenders or gay men does not protect women and children from sexual assault. Women and children are sexually assaulted by 90% of the time men they know and trust. Their fathers, their uncles, family friends, clergy, teachers, not the boogeyman, but the folks that they've been told to trust and to follow. I think it sounds good, as I said, but if you really want to stop sexual assault, you really want to protect women and children, then let's cut out the scare tactics. Unfortunately, the campaign against the Equal Rights Ordinance succeeded, and the fears won, and people, it, it didn't get passed. It, ultimately, it failed. So I was trying to look for something that these pro-bathroom bill people would maybe cite, and I found a list on Breitbart, which I hated clicking on, but it was like a list of stories that support bathroom bills that the left won't reference or something. And it was like 80 or 90 percent men peeping into women's bathrooms, which is 
an insane thing to connect this law with. People have been peeping into women's bathrooms since the invention of the eyeball. Like, this has been a trope in movies for decades, like men trying to get into the women's locker room and, like, get a picture, like, get a, get a sight of a butt. Like, this is not something with the advent of gender-neutral bathrooms that's an issue. But I did find one study that was conducted in 2008 and 2009 by the UCLA School of Law's Williams Institute that found that the people who are at risk in bathrooms are transgender and gender nonconforming people. So it surveyed 93 people in Washington, D.C., and the study author Jody Herman said, about 70% of the sample reported experiencing being denied access to restrooms, being harassed while using restrooms, and even experiencing some forms of physical assault. On that note, like the people who are really suffering from harassment here are not the white dudes who are like the straight white men who are peeping on women, like the pervy men. No. They are not the marginalized ones here. Like the the trans community is extremely vulnerable. Um, I mean, this is a community that faces like 41% of trans people have attempted suicide at some point in their life. And nearly 20% have been abused uh, by like a close family member. And then, I mean, half say that they've been harassed at the workplace. Like, they experience sexual violence at higher rates than other populations. Like, it's very doubtful that these laws are doing anything to make bathrooms safer for women, but it's highly 100% likely— certain, yeah. Yeah, that they are definitely making life harder and more dangerous for trans men and women. And now joining us in the studio is Joshua Block, an attorney from the American Civil Liberties Union's LGBT project, who is representing Gavin Grimm and will represent him at the Supreme Court next month. Thank you so much for having me. So there there have been so many cases, or rather so many anti-trans laws cropping up in the country in the past couple of years. I'm wondering, what is it about Gavin's case in particular that has is the one that's going in front of the Supreme Court. So Gavin's case actually started before many of the biggest trans anti-trans laws had been passed. So the big North Carolina law, um, other bills in other states came after this case had already started. And essentially, for several years, the Department of Education had been advising schools that they need to treat trans kids consistently with their gender identity. And most schools had been doing so when they were told by the Department of Education. What happened in Gavin's case is the school board said, we've read the guidance materials from the Department of Education, and we don't care what they say. If you want to make us treat Gavin like other boys, you'll have to sue us. So that really brought it out to another level. And Gavin's was the first, one of the first times there was a federal lawsuit brought in this context to protect transgender students. Can you walk us through what you've been through with Gavin over the past two or three years? Yeah. And each step. It's funny that each step of the way, I'd been telling Gavin, well, once we send this letter, the school board will show it to their attorney and come to their senses. Once we file a case, the school board will agree to settle. Once this happens, it'll all be over. And this school board has sort of clung, you know, tooth and nail every step of the way. 
in resisting, you know, doing what the Department of Education or what the courts say. It's filed an appeal anytime it could. And then the district court actually ruled against us, and we had to wait about six to nine months later in order to get that decision reversed from the Court of Appeals. I'd been telling Gavin all along that once the Court of Appeals rules, this will all be over. Uh, but it wasn't. The school board uh, then petitioned the Supreme Court for review, and the Supreme Court agreed to take the case. So from beginning to end, it's been two years now, and I met Gavin when he was 15 years old. Now he's 17. So it's sort of a boys-to-men situation. It's mm-hmm. amazing to you know see the difference between a 15-year-old kid and a 17-year-old uh, young adult. I, I think that it's been a tough experience for Gavin and for me. I think it would be a tough experience for anyone, but it's been amazing to see his resilience and his growth in the face of this experience. So I've seen some speculation that since the DOJ has made it clear that protecting LGBT rights isn't important to them um, and that they're not going to pursue the same case against these bathroom bills as the Obama administration was going to, that Gavin's case might not even make it to the Supreme Court. Uh, do you have any insight about that? Do you, what do you think is going to happen? So the Supreme Court agreed to take the case, and it agreed to consider two different questions. One was, does the court have to defer to the Department of Education's views about what its regulations require? The Department of Education has a regulation that says you can provide separate restrooms for boys and girls. Of course, the regulation doesn't say anything about excluding anyone, much less transgender students, from those restrooms. And the Department of Education has said, we don't interpret this regulation as authorizing the school to exclude Gavin in this way. So the first question is whether or not a court is supposed to defer to that view. And that means that even if the court might have thought the regulation meant something else, as long as it's reasonable for the Department of Education to interpret it one way, you defer to that. That's the first question. But the court also granted review on a second question, which is, forgetting about what the Department of Education says, what is the right interpretation of the statute and the regulations? Is that first question an uncertainty now because Betsy DeVos is in charge of the Department of Education, or is there some other reason why the Department of Education might not hand hand over the guidelines as they would have earlier? Well, the Trump campaign, uh, various members of it had... Uh, expressed disapproval of the Department of Education's interpretation. I think it's always depended a little bit on who you ask when. Um, you know, Trump himself had once said that he has no problem with Caitlyn Jenner using the women's restroom in his hotel. And it's a good thing he doesn't have a problem with it because that's what New York City and New York State require. <laughs> um, but other people in his administration, certainly Mike Pence, um, would have a big problem with it. It's not clear what the Department of Education or the Department of Justice, which is the entity that represents the Department of Education in court, would do now. So just in a situation like Gavin's or in North Carolina, what power do local officials have to enforce these rules? The rules are ultimately unenforceable because they don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. The school board doesn't even know what it means by biological gender. It refuses to say whether biological gender means chromosomes, refuses to say whether it means genitals, or something else. So 
the school board has not said that if someone had genital surgery, which is unavailable for people under 18, but the school board has not said whether someone with genital surgery would then be um, treated by them as having changed their biological gender. The school board hasn't said what they would do um, if a student had XY chromosomes, but because of androgen sensitivity disorder um, had uh, female uh, anatomy and secondary sex characteristics. School board, school board can't answer any of those questions because all it knows is that biological gender means not a trans person. And the fact is that the only reason why Gavin is in this situation is that people know he's transgender. If he had come to Gloucester uh, from a different school district or from a state where he had already had his birth certificate changed or something like that, no one would have known that he's transgender and he would be using the bathroom just like anyone else without any problem. What's really crazy is that in a lot of states, um, you can't get your birth certificate amended unless you have genital surgery. In some states, you can have it amended much younger without genital surgery. Virginia requires some sort of surgery. Gavin had top surgery, and he had an amended birth certificate issue this past fall. So his birth certificate lists him as male. If he went to North Carolina, he could use the men's restroom. But at Gloucester, he is stuck using the, the girls' restroom or a separate facility because the school board is saying, even though this is the sex marker on your driver's license and on your birth certificate, we are going to treat you as being a biological female. This feels like they're putting themselves through a lot of trouble. Obviously, you can't speak to their motivation, but are they just stuck in a fight they can't pull out of now? They have to follow it all the way. I don't think that at any step of this process, um, what the school board has done has been a rational weighing of costs and benefits. I think if this didn't have a um, ideological valence to it, there's not the sort of money at stake, you know, that would force a school district to say it's better to fight this in court than to just do the right thing. I think you have a majority of the school board that, you know, issued this policy um, either because of their own ideological views or because of the views of their constituents. And from the very beginning, this policy has been totally disconnected from any reality occurring at Gloucester High School. And yet the school board passes this policy based on wild scenarios about people using showers, about all these other things that, you know, actually never occur but have nothing to do with Gavin. So if the school board had really been concerned about showers and locker rooms, then pass a policy about showers and locker rooms. I think that policy would have a lot of flaws in it, but at least it would be rationally connected to what they say they're worried about. I think that what, what's driving a lot of these policies is, you know, fear and misunderstanding of who trans people are. So in 2016 was a record year for anti-trans laws, and 2017 is expected to be worse. What are the various forms of discrimination that you're seeing in terms of legislation, and how can we fight them? I think that what happened in 2016 is that the Supreme Court had just ruled that uh, states could no longer prohibit same-sex couples from marrying. And so all the same groups that every year wanted to, you know, say 
you know, marriage for same-sex couples is like double plus bad. They had to find a new target and their new target is trans people. So they, they, they've moved on from one thing to another and they view trans people as a, an easier target to demagogue against. And you had organizations um, like Alliance Defending Freedom that wrote cookie-cutter bills that they shopped around to conservative legislators in all sorts of states that banned uh, that would ban you know trans people from you know even existing essentially, and the the Republican Party passed like a resolution in January of 2016 encouraging state legislatures to pass these laws because they viewed it as a good you know motivating the base get out the vote uh, technique. I think that luckily, bad laws only passed in two places. One was North Carolina, which passed um, HB2, which is a law that says that um, in any uh, governmental building, educational institution or governmental building, um, people must use restrooms um, based on their biological gender, which they define as the gender on your birth certificate. Um, the other thing that passed was in Mississippi where they sort of combined anti-trans laws with other laws that would legalize discrimination against LGBT folks in the name of religion. Right now, you are getting ready to go to the Supreme Court. Can you talk about um, just generally how you're preparing, what this, what the status of these bathroom bills are, what you're looking at in the months going forward or month. So we have, you know, four or five weeks to prepare for oral argument, doing a lot of moots, which are practice arguments among, you know, other lawyers who pretend to be judges. And you test out a lot of your arguments, see what the reaction is. You practice a lot about what's the easiest way to say something crisply and sharply. So a certain word might be very effective on paper, but if you're stumbling over it when you say it, like imprimatur, I would not include that in an oral argument because, you know, there's at least a 30% chance I'll mess up pronouncing it. <laughs> so you sort of have to, you know, translate your argument from, you know, written language to oral language. And then I, you take a lot of, you know, blood pressure medication. I don't, I don't know what... <laughs> You know, what you do to, you know, calm your nerves and, you know, get in your Zen place and see what happens. I, I think that, you know, all along, my biggest worry has always been, am I going to do enough to not let Gavin down? You know, he has been, I'm starting to tear up a little bit right now. I cannot imagine doing what he's done and the courage, you know, that he's shown and the fortitude that he's shown, it's just inspiring to me. And, you know, my, I hope that, you know, I'm able to provide legal representation that um, is worthy uh, of him or that comes close to matching uh, what he deserves. I think that there's a lot of, you know, always a lot of pressure to, um, for the broader legal issue, there's always a lot of pressure in terms of wanting to do a good job yourself. But I think what's always been in the forefront of my mind has been, you know, am I going to give Gavin the representation that he deserves? 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was just the most moving good interview. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks. For the best segment of the show, How to Handle the Dicks, where we tell you how Prachi and I are handling the dicks just on a day-to-day, tiny, microscopic level. Prachi, how are you handling the dicks? I'm really excited to share this with you, actually. <laughs> I Over the weekend, I told all of our friends, but I, I told them not to tell you because I, I wanted to surprise you, you on the podcast. podcast. Surprise? Yeah. <laughs> So wow. here's my announcement. I we were all like sitting in the same room. I know. <laughs> okay, I didn't hear. <laughs> um, so the biggest thing that I'm doing is I've started taking Krav Maga. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's amazing. I and I love it so far. <laughs> I've I've ta- I went that was my big Valentine's Day plan. I went to Krav Maga That's last amazing. night and forgot that it was Valentine's Day. But Who cares? um yeah, it's really cool because I've been feeling like I have a lot of like aggression and like anxiety and I want to do something active but I I wanted to do more than like run and I didn't want to do like I know like a cardio class and I don't really enjoy going to the the gym but so I wanted to do something where I was also going to gain a real skill and and so I used to take martial arts as a kid and so I was researching them, and I decided to do Krav Maga because that was the most practical one. It's, like, actually for street combat. And <laughs> when I went in to sign up, the instructor looked at me, and he goes – he and I was talking to him about my concerns or just, like, how I'm nervous about doing this. And he goes, oh, you will definitely get punched in the face if you, in st- class? If you stay. Yeah, in class if you stay. He's like, and then you'll learn how to not get punched in the face. <laughs> oh, my like, God. And I was like, okay – Sold. I mean, I'm going to learn how to do street combat, I guess. I don't Prachi's see how, how to handle the dicks this week is street combat. <laughs> Wait. I, he assured me that there are people tinier than me who do this successfully. No, you'll so, be great. Um, so far, I can beat up nothing, but <laughs> it's only my second class. Um, can, can I tell you mine? Yeah. I took boxing. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> Joanna. We're on the same wavelength. We're on the same wavelength. <laughs> uh, mine is different because it's not useful street combat. It's like an— I mean, you're still learning how to, like, punch and kick. You're still learning how to punch and kick. I'm doing it at this place called Rumble, which is— That's a very It's like a new gym name. near our office. And you wear, glo- you wear wraps and you wear gloves. And you punch for half the class, you're on a bag— Punching. That's so great. In the dark to really intense, like good, thumpy music. That's fun. And I I encourage I this. love to punch. Is it like a a membership thing? Or are you gonna No, be? it's like classes. Oh, it's classes, okay. But it's not Krav Maga. You can't like work your way through levels. Yeah. I'll be I mean, I'll be I'm You'll gonna be a black be, belt. I mean, no. I what probably will Krav never Maga get to become like? a black belt. <laughs> I'm not even a white belt. I'm in no belt right now. You so. don't even have a belt? No, I don't even have a belt. I have to earn a belt. <laughs> I'm so proud of us. I know. Look at us. Engaging we're, in constructive violence. We're getting better at this. We're yeah. getting so good. I mean, this is such a useful skill now that as a society, as a culture, we've determined that it's acceptable to punch Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and please rate and review us on iTunes so other people can find the podcast. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Dries. Mandana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader. And this episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. Bye.